formed a bunch of my scientific learning while I was in the Southeast, because that's real deer biology there. I mean, you, you know, it's not that, as you know, thousands of acres of corn and soybean fields, you got to dig in, do some real, real work down there. everybody tuning back in. I appreciate all the support. Um, we have Dr. Marcus Lashley on today. I'm going to keep this intro very, very short and sweet. Um, he was my first guest on last year, first guest ever on this podcast. We, we talk about prescribed fire that time. Today, we talk about everything wild, wild turkeys, habitat, um, biology, and then, of course, just a good turkey hunting BS session. Talk about his hunts, what how he likes to hunt, what he hunts with kind of get into all that fun stuff. Um, and also I brought on Corey Parker is um, to help, to help co-host this podcast. I, this is what, when I, when we got done recording, I told Corey, I was like, this is exactly what I envisioned this podcast morphing into more voices in the room, just a good fun discussion between, you know, a couple people um, and He's going to add a lot to it. Uh, Corey's a lifelong hunter uh, in the Savannah area, a uh, good friend of mine, great hunter, and he recently acquired some land, which he's been doing some great things with. Um, he's hosting an outdoor workshop on June 3rd. Um, check that out. Um, I'm going to have that in the show notes, um, th that incredible lineup of, of speakers. And uh, Corey also heads up and founded the the – Coastal Empire branch, the National Deer Association, started that in 2018. He's had some incredible banquets, and routinely those banquets every year um, are the top revenue-generating uh, fundraising events for the National Deer Association. I mean, it's well over – I mean, it's a staggering amount of money um, that, that he's generated for conservation, everything tied into that. Um, that branch also won the new branch of the year, I think in 2018, and last year won the uh, Community Engagement Award. So they're doing a lot of great things. Uh, he's going to add a lot of flavor to this. Um, so let's get right to it uh, with Dr. Marcus Lashley. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Southeast Whitetail. I'm very honored to have Dr. Marcus Lashley back on. Um, and, I, you know, I say on this podcast a lot, I, I couldn't do it without guests. But truly, couldn't do it without Marcus because he was my very first guest on when I, <laughs> when I started this. Uh, the first episode was just me rambling, and and, and you were my first guest. So I, I greatly appreciate you being on last year and then coming on this year. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Glad I didn't tear it up and it was able to prevail. 
despite me being the first one. <laughs> now you, you were yours is, is still remains as 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 the, the um it, the, I think top I think top three with uh it's you Dr. Chamberlain and Dr. Grant Woods. So yeah. you're you're well, an outstanding company, I think at least. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm uh humbled to know that I would be in the top three with those guys. And, um, congrats on the success. Um, I mean, I, I've been following, you know, you and Dr. Goldsby for a while, but then w- with the recent success of the launching of the wild Turkey science podcast. Yeah. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. That, that has been a, a roller coaster riding that thing, man. It's, it's been a lot of fun learning a ton yeah. and, uh, the feedback has just been amazing. I bet. I, I, I can imagine. I can imagine that you, you know, get some good feedback that you like, and then a lot of probably, you know, more questions and, you know, know, yeah, (laughs) well, we definitely stimulate a lot of questions. That's for sure. And you know, not all of, not all of it's positive. There's several folks that, uh, uh, don't like what we say and they let us know about it. So that's fine. That's what What, it's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be a conversation. Are you alluding that there's some negative energy in the turkey space? With turkey hunters, I mean. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's definitely some negative energy that stems from strong, passionate disagreement. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I will leave it like that. Um, also, I'd introduce uh, Corey Parker. He, he's a, he's been a good, good friend of mine. Life, he's a lifelong hunter out of Savannah. Um, he recently acquired a track of land but that I will add it's loaded with turkeys. So, um He's got that going on, and he's also um, he started, founded the Coastal Empire National Deer Association, um, based out of Savannah, which won the National Branch National Branch of the Year Award the first year, and recently the National Community Engagement Branch of the Year. So Corey's on to add a little color commentating. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on, Mark. <laughs> Been listening for a while, doing a great job. Uh, yeah i will correct you there a little bit it was the new branch of the year we're not we're not big time yet with the branch of the year we're just rookie of the year if you will uh well that's gonna whatever that means that'll happen this year there's nothing wrong with that that's right yeah i appreciate you having me on man do a great job and looking forward to it yeah i I figured probably time to have Corey on add a little flavor to it because he's probably been the most talked about person that's never been on uh some good (laughs) things some bad things but it's all good it's all true right Corey? Uh, yeah, we'll go with that. That's fine. No such thing as bad publicity, I guess. I think as as a beer company out there that might <laughs> that might that might disagree with that, Corey. In fact, it's your favorite beer company. I won't have touche, touche. Okay, so um, let's get right into this. Um, Marcus here. I, I um I want to kind of start things off with like habitat habitat talk, yeah. and I know I mean that's a lot. I mean, obviously you uh go into that lot in that podcast about um how the landscape has changed it's just mm-hmm. insanely good but i think a lot of people they get geared up for turkey season deer season's over maybe they start looking for sheds or they're, or they're wrapping up duck season um and they start getting up for turkey season yeah. now you know a lot of seasons are coming to a close Moths part of south carolina's closing long story short people are going to start switching gears to deer so, and I don't, I mean, I know y'all are going to talk about this all in your podcast, but like, what what are some things that maybe some like, you know, kind of when people are out prepping for deer season that they should be looking or monitoring like right now, 
beginning of May, going all the way the first of the year. Yeah. Are there some things? What, that, what should what should they look for? I mean, you know, when they're prepping food. I mean, most yeah. people, if listen to this, they kind of know what to do for deer for the most part. Right, right. But there's some things that they, these people should be considering mm-hmm. in the quote off season for turkeys. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question, and you know, uh, I get asked some variation of this question all the time, and. I think there right now is a great time to evaluate some things that in general are missing on the landscape. And you can kind of decide how much of it is missing on your landscape by evaluating right now. So basically the next two months and that the main thing that many studies we've covered, several of them on, on our podcast have identified across the South to include South Carolina, I think you have a lot of listeners in that state, but just across the South in general, we're pretty much missing brood rearing cover. And there's lots of reasons for that. And uh, we've covered all kinds of them, but we typically use areas that would have naturally or uh, by some unintentional measure been pretty decent brooding cover. We now use those spaces in a land use that is not good in general for brood rearing. So yeah, yeah. When, when you're on the landscape walking around, what you're looking for, if you're you're trying to establish what is good brooding cover, what you're looking for is a forb-dominated community. That's just a broadleaf herbaceous plant. That would be uh, ragweed or partridge pea. Uh, you might see a bunch of white flowers that would be some kind of bone set or yellow flowers that could be golden rods or uh, uh, lance leaf coreopsis or you know we have all kinds of wild flowers but basically a, a herbaceous flowering plant some of yes. them might be quite showy some of them not so showy like ragweed you're not going to see the you're not going to notice the flowers on those but it's still a really good structure. It's very high quality for deer. So there's a lot of overlap there during that time of year for deer nutrition, but the structure in that is critical for pole rearing for them to be really successful. There are lots of reasons for that. Uh, but basically you would have this canopy of forbs that usually are less than waist tall, or ideally they would be, and underneath those plants would be a lot of open space and and dirt basically so to create that it's a pretty deliberate action and you need some type of disturbance uh, but more importantly now seemingly is you'd need to do something to get rid of grass and we have all kinds of non-native grasses that are culprit problems that's going to be common bermuda it might be bahia or or fescue or some sort of sod that's been planted it could be other weeds that are warm season problems uh that that you're not intending to be there like crab you know the crab grasses or or uh what's some other ones that you would have there uh, maybe Vasey's grass or Dallas mm-hmm. grass, you know, some of those things like that. Or it might be something that was historically planted at some time that uh, has just persisted. Like a cool season example would be Italian ryegrass. Man, that is covering up mm. the places that I'm going right now. And the structure 
It's just not. It's yeah. it's not conducive to high quality brood rearing. So you can basically right now go to those areas where a lot of turkeys are brooding, at least in a little south of you, and they're going to be really soon if they're not already where you're at. And you can evaluate whether or not you have that type of structure and identify problems. Like if ryegrass is a problem right now, it's pretty obvious because yeah. the, it'll be basically a field full of, of seed heads that are really obvious to everybody. So, uh, you Play know, that. now is a great time to evaluate that and make plans for the fall, uh, to, to remedy that if you identify it as a, a problem on your land. I can, That's right. Uh, That's right. I don't know if it, if it goes along with that, but I know last year, I think kind of lucked into it. I mean, we've got a lot of, uh, wetlands on my property, uh, standing waters, you know, where a lot of roosting trees, you know, we've, we've had birds there historically, but last year, just buying a property, we kind of got into, uh, we were going to plant a dove field. We were all about planting a dove mm. field. We just kind of broadcasted uh, millet, proso, and sorghum, you know, throughout, you know, kind of in rows. We went back through and harrowed strips in the middle mm. of it just early on. And, yeah. and I don't know, you know, all summer we watched um, as kind of the pulse came out and they were just all out in there every single day. And it just mm. made a great cover for them. That's not natural. We're hoping to get more into burning and uh, sure. in some of our woods. Our woods aren't real. Uh, conducive right now but mm-hmm. i saw a big difference i mean we had a you know we had 15 16 poults coming out of there every day um, yeah and you can see it now we've always had mm-hmm. mature birds but um that was that was a you know kind of a happy accident for us you know kind of an unsuccessful sure. dove field but it created a bunch mm-hmm. of turkeys uh, yeah this well and and uh so especially when you get on into the mid summer it'll become really obvious like what you're talking about the use of those because the poults are a little bit bigger where the bottleneck is is right in that first two weeks of life and and those things are just too small for you to see them Mm. but that kind of structure that you had a little bit later in the summer from that would is excellent it's just a little bit late for for them when they're really small so but, but that being said you can integrate different kinds of practices to meet those requirements they still need that kind of structure when you were seeing them and you were providing it and that but it it was just a little bit late for that that early one but you can create that from altering your practices and your fall food plots but then those provide really good structure and early brooding that you would miss in your dove fields or, or some other kind of warm season plot but usually dove fields would be a little more conducive uh especially if you have them if they're dirty dove fields like what you were seem to be describing right. yeah so you know if, thinking about that okay we if you get out there this week and you're not seeing much of what we were just describing that what, what you can do is plan in your fall to change your practices a little bit for your fall food plots to make some more conducive structure and plant community characteristics in those er those early succession areas which all your food plots are going to be in those areas uh you can take some deliberate actions to make sure that those are providing that early brooding and then if you're mixing it in with something like your dove fields you you can provide some really high quality stuff on the landscape for them at that time and not really be given up on some of your other 
stuff that you want to do like dove hunt or hunt deer in the in the fall so where i see that go wrong well there's the the primary way that that goes wrong is you usually have a grass problem and uh for me it doesn't matter where i go it's almost always ryegrass and food plots uh but crabgrass could be that you you know it'll vary depending on where you're at uh but you need to identify that uh that usually is a big time problem and people aren't that you know we get past deer season and they just don't worry about the plots and what they look like anymore yep uh instead you could take the opportunity to take care of those problematic grasses so that you extend that food plot value into turkey season now if you pair that with a little bit of change in what you plant now i'm not saying you have to do this on 100 percent of the landscape but if you take some of your plots and change what you plant such that it provides a more conducive structure, you put those two things together and all of a sudden your fall food plots can be really attractive during this deer season, really attractive for a gobbler to strut in during hunting season, and then really attractive for brood rearing when you get a little bit later in the, the uh, season there. And I really like a plant that like crimson clover, uh that matures fairly early in the spring and then it dies so uh if you plant let, let's say crimson and wheat and they both mature and die they're about turkey season and what you end up with then if you've taken care of all those other problematic weeds is you have an invasion of of all these native forbs that you want that, that's what's producing the structure you want and you've chosen a food a fall food plot that allows those things to colonize right when it matters which is you know uh right now basically so you know just tweaking things a little bit and you're not really giving up much i mean a, a crimson and and uh wheat patch in the fall is pretty attractive to hunt over i love right. that mix and if you go a little bit light on the wheat you know the the structure for it is excellent by the time you get around to brood, brood rearing if you've taken care of your problematic weeds and uh you know you're not really giving up much so you can tweak that a little bit again if you've identified man i've got ryegrass running out of my ears well just plant crimson in the fall until you get it cleaned up and that'll give you a lot of herbicide options and it makes it easy to evaluate before there's a seed hit on it because mm -hmm. then anything that's grass isn't supposed to be there. Yeah. Right. If you plant only crimson, then you could see, oh, in late November, I've got a bunch of grass colonizing. Well, we need to get rid of the grass. Like you can identify that early before you go to seed, because once it goes to seed, the, the herbicide's wasted then. Unless it has some sort of soil residual activity, which we can talk about that if you guys want to as well. But, uh, you know, I like tweaking that so you don't necessarily give up anything in the fall, but you can make some adjustments that are much more conducive to turkeys in the spring. That makes and, sense. Uh, a, a gobbler loves strutting around in that crimson patch. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. It makes for a pretty scene. I know that. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, the whole family will get on board with that that scene. <laughs> um, I talk a lot about pine rotation um and i help people with you know um 
what I like to call was like checkerboarding, mm-hmm. the, the checkerboard approach. You know, if someone's got um, heavy planted pine trees, I mean, I, that's a lot of what we do in the Southeast. And and if you have land and you need some, need some income to pay for expenses, carrying costs, make the farm sustainable, that's a very good option. Um, and, you know, with the pine rotation, I think I've got a pretty good handle as far as for, for you know, whitetail use, you know, as far as, mm-hmm. you know, I, most of my bedding that I create is plant is clear cut plant of pine trees, or it's going to be kind of natural bedding within swamps. And I tend to kind of promote maybe like 10 acres to 50 acres at a time, you mm-hmm. know, maybe 30. If someone has a more sizable track, maybe a hundred acres. Is there any approach to that, that, uh, that, that, that pine rotation meant, you know, philosophy where you're growing pine trees for income, but you're also doing it the best you can for wildlife. You're burning, you're thinning, mm-hmm. doing all that. Is there anything that should be kind of tweet for turkeys? Um, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, in, in, in one kind of si- second question w- would be like clear cut. I'm sorry. Yeah. Clear cut site prep. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of times clear cut forester wants to go in there and nuke it all. And then, you know, when the growing season and then replant dormant, dormant season, I mean, is that a, is there anything in that kind of model that's just detrimental to turkeys? Well, I, I think what happens, you know, when you're thinking about deer, when you get, especially when you're getting into really high quality uh, bedding cover, mm-hmm. you're starting to get towards the end of turkey use where it's usable. Right. right. And in terms of you know you you still want high sunlight you still that you know what you said the checkerboard approach you still want different structural uh characteristics in the vegetation adjacent to one another like that you just tend to be a little more frequent on the disturbance what's desirable so the, the return of fire you might be faster if you're in really high productivity soils, you might get most of what you're trying to accomplish with a turkey out of a two-year rotation. Uh, whereas if you're on really poor soils or more, and as you go north, you can lengthen that as to what you're getting. And, uh, you know, the the fawning and bedding cover kind of on the end of the rotation for deer. And we would be on, you know, on the end of our rotation for turkeys would be more nesting cover before we would re-enter. But that's typically a year or two sooner ideally for turkeys so you know but that's really how people could think about it if you have something that you think is man that's perfect for for holding that big buck you know for cover yeah we're probably we're probably a little bit past what what's desirable for turkey use it, but, it's such a short window it seems like for turkeys as, yeah. as, as opposed to deer and that's why i've been trying to you know promote more just Maybe not heavy rotation is the right phrase, but just more frequent rotation. Maybe smaller blocks, so that you constantly yeah. have that. You're talking about with the timber harvest. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I think that what you were describing is, is perfectly fine, as long as you you have some places where you have high sunlight penetration and you have relatively frequent fire return. Yeah, uh, you know you can keep those stands in in really good shape. For turkeys and and uh you know right after a timber harvest on in a few years you you have a pretty good brooding and nesting cover generally in those depending on uh you know what kind of plants are responding early in that and the site prep could 
go a long way to help or hurt depending on what kind of site prep it is and what what the plant community response is yeah so but but it gets pretty without fire in that system that new newly planted stand gets out of what what you would want for turkeys pretty fast yeah Yeah. so and and you'll see them basically they'll start getting relegated to using the edge of it rather than you know maybe nesting out in a block they'll be on the edge of it that makes sense so so you you, yeah you're right you'll see that happen pretty quickly you can i I really advocate for variation at every and every aspect you can create it Mm -hmm. one of those might be the the size of the the unit that you harvest you know you're not necessarily cutting them all into 20 acre blocks you might have them vary from 10 to 50 or whatever like you said uh so that variation is is great and you're increasing the not just the edge but the the intersection of vegetation structure that could be used for different things for turkeys that doesn't mean you you also you know having some some uh low sunlight places that are basically thermal cover or loafing areas for turkeys intermixed in that is highly desirable as well yeah you know you don't want to be missing that that's right another approach that's a little bit outside of the typical uh plantation pine model is to have some stands that are later in age you know toward the end of the rotation and start managing those under a variable retention model and that is super valuable because you can basically have all of the needs met for a turkey through their whole life cycle in one stand and that can be extremely valuable and all i mean by variable retention is there's variation in the amount of trees depending on where you're at in the stand so you have different amounts of sunlight penetration and maybe some patches you'll have a couple acres that have nearly full sun you might have other places that have almost no sun and all the variation in between and if you lay layer in fire into that kind of forest management that that can be extremely valuable and it's about as good of a way as you can balance management of different game species together like that sort of forest management is a great integration because it's so you're intentionally creating a really high variation in sunlight and that generates that variation in vegetation structure with especially with fire yeah yeah so if I'm kind of envisioning this, Mark, what you're talking about, I've seen your place, but, you know, basically you're, as you're kind of manipulating the uh, different blocks, uh, different age, uh, I guess, age classes of those blocks, you know, you're basically moving your your wildlife around. I mean, you're moving your your, your deer habitats in the thicker areas once it comes out of your, you know, high turkey uh use i guess and then you're 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 creating more areas you know pretty much constantly through through fire and and the way you're harvesting your timber or select cutting or whatever uh but you're they're never really remaining stagnant in an ideal situation they're pretty much moving around you know kind of deer moving in and turkeys are moving out to their next new spot is that kind of what i'm hearing yeah i think you're you're exactly spot on in the rotation depending you know each you have multiple stands that are at different stages in that rotation uh, of timber harvest or fire, and you're layering those in, the more you, you know, it gets more and more complex, obviously, but, 
but basically some stands would always just have been harvested or just just have been burned it's obviously a little easier to make sure that you always have something that's been just burned unless you have a, a large amount of acreage but uh, those are constantly kind of switching places over time. So you burn and the first year or two might be really good brooding cover. And then the next, the, the second and third year might be really good nesting. And then you start getting into what you'd have as high quality fawning and, and uh, bedding cover. And then they might re-enter the rotation and get burned again. And now they've reset. So you're exactly right. They're all in different stages and they're kind of switching places every year as to what they're providing and uh they'll soon be back you know to what uh, at least for the fire regime they'd soon be back to to the starting over so but it, it will do exactly what you said it will just move the wildlife around you know to use those the stages that they need for different things and and you know i focused on brooding cover in the fields because i think most people have a lot of control over that even if you're in a lease situation but you can provide some really high quality brooding cover in a forest too. You just need high sunlight and, and uh, the, you know, fire, and you can create really high quality brooding cover in that scenario. That's right. You, you just got to cut some trees, Corey. I keep telling him. Hey, we're, get, yeah. we're getting to it, okay? We're getting to it. Just... I keep telling him <laughs> he needs to cut some of those trees. All we're, right, we'll, trying to. we'll switch gears and talk about the bird itself while we're here, the wild turkey. Um, I've thought about this a good bit, and maybe it's just because I'm not a good – maybe it's because I'm not a great hunter. I don't know. But do you think that birds have – a? I mean, there's been a lot of changes with, with turkey hunting over the past 20, 25 years. There's more hunters, more turkey hunters. The landscape has changed, not for the better. Um you know, having a lot of issues, as we know, about nesting cover, brood rearing cover. Do you think that the is that that the bird itself has adapted to all of the basically more pressure? You know, there's more. I can't say it was more predators, but but you know, the coyote wasn't prevalent in the southeast mm-hmm. 20 years ago. It is now. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Do you think they have adapted, or it's possibility they're adapting to basically communicate less? I mean, I, I hear the same thing. You know, when I was doing the, it's, it's been the same thing for me the past five years. And when I was talking to the guys, all the hunters, most of the hunters I talked to with the low country uh, turkey invitational this year, which was like the, I think the second week of the South Carolina season, it's like birds will gobble, maybe on the roost, maybe when they come down, that's it. I'm not even hearing hens talking, but do you, you think mm-hmm. there's a chance they're, they're adapting to just communicating less? And then my follow up question is if, when they stop talking to each other, and I realize they're still they're still communicating, mm-hmm. we're just maybe not hearing. But <clears throat> when they kind of go in that shutdown mode, where they're not communicating, is it detriment detrimental to the hunter? If all of a sudden the hunters out there calling, do you think? I know there's no testing on this research, but do you think that that bird might be saying, "Hey, that's danger over there," even though it might be the world champion turkey caller? There's no other turkeys calling. And then there's someone over there. Do you think they could possibly associate that with danger? Well, I, I think uh, you you hit the nail on the head. There's not real good data on a lot of these, and we can talk through some of this. And I, I can kind of give you my perspective from a, a scientist's point of view on it uh, and what we need to know to 
to really get at some of these questions, but uh, I can tell you this behaviorally from me, I, I've been turkey hunting since I was a little kid and, and love it. I've been obsessed with it. And it's the reason I'm here that I'm doing. I've devoted my life to this. Uh, that was the reason that we really wanted to start the podcast focused on turkeys to try to help that resource. You know, like turkey's been part of my life for my entire life. And I am very uh, attentive to the behavior that I am observing when it, when I go to a new place to hunt, uh, especially if I get a little time to scout. But even if it's just in the moment, if I'm hearing a lot of turkey chatter, I am much more vocal. And if I'm not hearing it, then I'm not. And uh, I've killed a bunch of turkeys in a bunch of places and they act different depending on where you're at. And I've, I've got hypotheses on some of them, why they would do one thing or not the other. But one thing that's consistent is my behavior and I try to mimic what I'm hearing. So if I hear hens all the time and they're constantly yelping back and forth and, and, mm -hmm. you know, cutting and all that sort of stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I'm hearing that commonly then I am much more commonly doing it. Uh, as, as opposed to a more reserved approach where I've been on some places where I very rarely do anything more than cluck and scratch leaves. Yeah. And, you know, even in high pressured areas, you, you, you hear them cluck and purr and they've got to eat. And that's kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking, right. You, you know, they, they all hear turkey scratching every day. Like they're all eating. Of course, if it's raining, you may not hear the leaves, but you get my point. Like they're, they're going to eat even if they're pressured. And yeah. uh, that's just a normal routine thing that they hear. So obviously you have to be pretty close to a turkey to get it to respond to that. But it can be a really effective way to, to close that little last little bit of distance to make one feel comfortable, especially in a, a pressured area. So while I don't have any data to say that they are keying in on that me i i personally hunt that way based on the idea that they are you know tuned in to to how much everybody's talking to each other so that's my roundabout way to to give you my opinion on it uh i don't i don't have any data to to know whether or not they're more or less responsive or keyed in on communication wise but uh that's that's how I hunt them. It's based on that premise. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of match the hatch with anything they call it in fly fishing, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love fly fishing as well. I don't have as much access to that, but I, I love that as well. It, it just makes me feel like I'm more of a part of the system and trying to figure out how nature make is meant to work. And, you know, turkey hunting and fly fishing both feel a lot like that to me. And so, uh, and I, I, I just value that intrinsically myself. So, uh, you know, both of those, those are like my, my two favorite sporting things. <laughs> well, it's like kind of up in our North. So we have a farm, a family farm up in North Georgia, up in the mountains, the far North Georgia, uh, along with North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And those birds tend to, you know, every couple of years, they just kind of descend on our little Valley that, you know, my family farms on and, a lot of what you're saying i mean they're they're loud you know when they're there I mean, they're mm -hmm. they're gobbling they're on the move trying to you know hook up with hens uh it seems like i'm not a 
biologist rancher because it, it seems like they're a lot more vocal you can mm-hmm. step out on the front porch and hear them all over the place but whereas down here in south georgia where they kind of have more uh at least the properties i hunt and my property from my experiences um they're a lot more stationary population they kind of tend to live there for you know kind of know where they know where the hens are they kind of see them and check in with them and they're a lot a lot more reserved birds so you know i never really connected the dots because i'm dumb in that regard but um yeah the better you know we're up there in north georgia and it's it's a good time to be up there and they're gobbling and they're they're on the property which is not a given i mean we hammer them and we find a lot of success doing that you know mm-hmm. calling a lot uh being real vocal getting getting mm-hmm. loud mixing our volumes but then when you're down here like exactly like you said getting a good spot and cluck a little bit maybe scratch around you know just try to yeah. be real subtle and that tends to be um, when we've seen success down here in those sustained populations that tends to be um, you know the right the right mm-hmm. tactic but it's I'd say it's boring I hate it I'd much rather go out <laughs> and hammer them than I, you know? <laughs> yeah really uh, have an interactive and screaming at you yeah well and I'm you know I'm, I love interacting with hands as well and it, it is fun when, yeah. when, when you get they're one, super when you get fired up cutting at you yeah they get they, yeah they're every time you do something somebody answers you and then they get mad and you get in a fight like i love that interaction and it's it's a yeah. uh, you know it's a lot of fun that's, but, and that's when that gobbler sneaks in behind you didn't know it was there because you're <laughs> arguing with a hen and she's this yeah. gobbler gobbles 15 yards behind you, <laughs> you oh yeah yeah or uh hopefully she'll drag one into you that's been stubborn or whatever but uh i, uh, see, I hunted a in place my experience they take them away from me i don't ever come to me they take them away from me. oh yeah <laughs> well i've had it work both ways uh but it, it is a lot of there's there's a lot of uh reward that comes from calling a hen in and her dragging a big tom into you that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten close to so i enjoy that because you've now tricked her into coming you know and drug him in as a consular you know consular prize uh <laughs> i was going to tell you I, I hunted in a i've hunted in northwest georgia and experienced what you're talking about i've hunted in a place in tennessee and in alabama where i mean you just hear hens all the time year round and i mean they'll gobble like you'll hear them on the deer stand gobbling sometimes and and then i've hunted in north carolina in sand hill that was longleaf and uh those uh, when i went there i'd never experienced turkeys to behave the way that those do and i i swear you'd get a few gobbles on the roost if you're lucky when they wake up and then when they hit the ground they would gobble and gobble and gobble all the way up late into the morning Hmm. and uh it was just a completely different it's like you you know the opposite of what I was used to, where I'd hear a gobbling really heavily on the limb, and then they shut up when they hit the ground. It was the opposite, where, and I don't know what to attribute that to, other than it the landscape was just completely wide open. Do you have some? Base, do you have an Onyx uh, waypoint for that for that area? Oh, oh they, I've got I've got several of them. <laughs> I hold them pretty close to the vest. But <laughs> <they're timeline. laughs> so about that, how's your? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say is, you know, that's one of the things I like because it's so such a different experience. And that one was fun because you can hear them gobble, but it's so wide open. Once they're gobbling, you can't get close to them anymore. There's no no way to hide from them or 
move yeah. on them or anything. You just you got to do these enormous loops to try to get in front of them, and and the hens are not very vocal, so you're just listening to birds gobble all over the place, and you can't do anything about it. Well, I, you're hunting Rios out in Kansas, you know, you got a big wide open space, and just like, well, yeah. there they are. I see them, yeah. I can hear them, but I can't do anything well, about I, it. I, yeah. I've got something for you. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of this tactic, um, but there is a tactic that you can sneak in close uh, in a wide open area and get really close to a gobbler. Um, we won't, I'm, aware, we, I'm aware of some of the tactics. We won't go into that. So with that being said, how, how's your season been? Um, I think I saw I saw a grip and grin of yours. Was it in one like the past week or so? Mm-hmm. How's your yeah, season I, been I, this year? Well, it's, it's, uh, when I've gotten to go, it was very good. Mm-hmm. So I've been four times and there are four dead turkeys that resulted from it. Oh man. I, that, my, but, my ratio is like in the <laughs> negative somehow. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Well, tell it's me like about more, them. There's more alive because you, well, <laughs> well I've been telling well, my dad that I'm really just trying to build them. Right yeah. 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 <laughs> That's, That's my plan is to let them live. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what was what was some of your memorable hunts this season? Yes, I, I I've had a mixed bag. Um, I well, first of all, I, I haven't gotten to go very much because I have some young children, and mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason, about the beginning of March is when everybody wants to get sick, and uh, <laughs> we've been dealing with every we've had like a, a household pandemic about every week for for yeah. the past several. <laughs> so uh that that puts a lot of stress on me at, you know on top of of work being busy at this time of year as well so i haven't been able to hunt as much as i like but the times i've gone hunting have been really good and uh the opening day in the north season in florida uh one of my my buddies invited me to come on a place that he has access to this really good and uh the three of us went together another one of his friends and and i did and it was kind of a mess because i I was actually in tennessee the night before doing some work up there and had to drive back late at night and i didn't get (laughs) home until about midnight because i i was go i was basically going through a monsoon the whole way and i was lamenting about it because they had already let me know that the rain on the forecast had kind of shut down the opening morning so we weren't going to go and, uh, they were going to let me know when, you know, if the rain moved out, we'd come and, and go later in the evening. They had to, the, to travel a couple hours and my house was only about 20 miles from where we were going to be hunting. So, uh, long story short, I wake up at daylight the next morning and it's beautiful outside. They completely missed the weather and it was just beautiful. And I was calling those guys and where they were at south of me in Florida. I guess that the rain all went that way and they were just getting hammered. And I was nice. like, guys, oh, this is pretty up here. So they, they decide, okay, we're coming. Well, then there's a big wreck or something on the highway. So they didn't end up getting up to, to, uh, the place until about noon. And, uh, we finally got together and about one. Uh, we we go out to a, a spot where we know there's some birds and there's two open fields. There's turkeys in both of them, and we got in a finger of woods and in between them. We started working a couple of gobblers. There's actually three gobblers and four hens, I think, or five hens that were strutting out in the field. And we got on them. We messed with them and messed with them. 
And we get up to about three o'clock and the hens just decided it was time to move on and left the gobblers. And we're in woods, but we can see them out in these fields, you know, 150 yards from us. And uh, they kind of changed their tune and they decided they wanted to be where we were. So they came on in and uh, the the other guy and I doubled in that one about three o'clock in the afternoon. So, but it had rained, you know, extensively and and it was kind of spitting rain a little bit when once we got there and had some that morning uh, it wasn't as pretty as it was at my house 20 miles south but uh yeah they were gobbling and carrying on you know it was a, a really good time the second time that i went hunting it was on uh public land and so that the first hunt we killed two double and then uh the second time that i went hunting I was supposed to go with a guy that I'd met and, and, uh, his kid got sick in the middle of the night and I'd already come over and was staying in a hotel and was going to meet him that morning. And, uh, he, he sent me a pen at about 2 a.m. It's like, Hey, I can't come. <laughs> so I wake up, you know, at four thirty, and I have a pen and, and his message telling me he's not able to go. So he sends me out on this public land to his spot. He's like, listen at this spot. You all hear birds in these places. Just do what you want to do. Go after them. And uh, I went out. Sure enough, right on cue, it had birds gobbling in every direction. And uh, I finally decided what I was going to do. And I was using the terrain and and the river to kind of get in a pinch point. Long story short, on that, I had I had already killed one turkey, and you get two tags in Florida, and uh. I'd called in two toms and they walked in the only opening I had to shoot them together. And I was scared I'd shoot both. So I did not shoot. And then because of the terrain, I didn't get another shot on them. And then, uh, so I didn't actually kill one that morning, but I had them in gun range and fooled with them all the way up late into the morning. So it was a big time. And then, uh, the third time I went with a a guy and I had a buddy come down from Mississippi and we got him his first Osceola. That was a special hunt because we got to watch that one strut for about an hour. Uh, he strutted all the way in with a bunch of hens. We made one mad. She drug him into us. So that one worked out and it was pretty special. And then this last one that you just saw us post, I went up and hunted with Will Goolsby and uh, one of his buddies in Alabama and that was another one. We sat on that turkey for three hours and we pulled all kind, all the stops out. You know, we played the runaway hen. We crawled on him twice. We looped around him multiple times and finally got on him about 10 in the morning and uh, got him in close. And uh, it was all the way till the last second. We didn't know who was going to shoot. And uh, finally, Will got to pull the trigger on that one. So that's all of my hunting for the, for the yeah. season. <laughs> that's a that's a hell of a season that's for sure what, yeah. what's your long beards on everyone we're in range what would if you if you if you had the choice of hunting the prettiest burn site that you can picture you know whatever age class prettiest burn site or the prettiest hardwood bottom where are you going just in general, uh, for for me, it, it's special to to get after one that has soot all over its feet. There you go. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite region to hunt? I mean, you, you know, you I know you're down there in Florida. 
Um, is there, I mean, do you, do you even have one? I mean, I, you know, some people don't, um, do you have well, a, a certain I, type of like terrain feature or something you just love? Yeah. I kind of, that's a good, good question. I, I really like, I mean, I love hunting them everywhere, but when it's rolling hills and you can mm -hmm. use terrain and, you know, a lot of times you're, you can't tell which direction there are cause it's echoing around or, or you're using terrain to get them to, you know, to, uh, in shot range and you can't see them until right, right when they're on it. You know, there's a lot of value in that for me yeah. being in that kind of terrain. And, uh, it's probably because that's what I grew up in it is, you know, these rolling hills like that. And, and, uh, I just, I really enjoy that. Often the turkeys seem to be more vocal in that situation. I don't know why. Maybe it's just the places I've been, but uh, I, I really, really like that kind of terrain. What do you? But I'll hunt them anywhere. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a pre preferred like uh, gun setup? I mean, are, are you kind of? You know, a lot of a lot of people nowadays are shooting the four ten um, with a red dot. Um, I just. Mm -hmm. I usually use either my Browning pump or my granddaddy's old side by side that shoots still shoots a two and three quarter inch. What, what, what do you, do you have a preference or you just, you know, well, I've been, I've been hunting with the same gun for better than two decades for sure. Maybe longer than that. It's just old, old Mossberg pump action, 12 gauge, mm -hmm. three and a half inch Magnum and, the hardest been, kicking gun ever made. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> oh, I know, I know about, about that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, and it and it's about twelve feet long. Yeah, uh, I've been hunting with that thing, and and uh, I, I put a red dot scope on it. Uh huh. Probably probably eight or nine years ago now. Maybe been a decade ago because I missed a turkey and is in actually northwest georgia and after that i put that that scope on it uh because i i don't know i just had some problems with getting my shoulder down on it but uh i did just recently get a mossberg uh 410 that i have gotten suited up i haven't hunted with it yet and my intent was that one of my kids is just getting old enough for i'm gonna take her and uh that's how it justified uh to the family getting getting it but i've got it set up and man i i really want to get on a turkey with that thing so i I want her to get on turkey with it too but that's my new mission i i want to get one with that that gun nice i like that what um turkey legs you know some people love them some people hate them do you have a uh, uh, a go to or a recipe that just is just killer for legs, thighs? I you know I really I I normally do something in a crock pot with them and just really slow cook. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't really have a, a particular recipe that I stick to on it. Uh, I've tried several things from different people, and uh, yeah, main thing is getting it soft enough and tender where you can eat it, you know, in uh, some sort of, of, uh, what's the word of some sort of stew or, or uh soup type of, yeah. Of consistency is what I'm looking for when I'm doing it. But yeah, I'm not, 
I'm not a uh, not the best on culinary stuff. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't tried it yet, but I was I, I had on uh, Dr. Chamberlain and Scott Rhodes who started the Low Country Turkey um, mm-hmm. Low Country Game Bird Foundation, and and Dr. Chamberlain was telling me. What he likes to do is he'll take the the legs, um, inject them with Cajun seasoning, mm-hmm. put them in a covered pot, you know, make sure you have moisture, oh, yeah. just like if you have venison in a crock pot, covered in moisture, mm-hmm. then put in the oven like a 400 for like 12 hours. And yeah. he said, it is just falling off the bone. He'll make tacos mm-hmm. out of it. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like pull, you know, it's pulled meat just falling off the bone. Yeah. I have not tried that. I've done some different, I, you know, kind of slow, slow cooking um, type yeah. things, but I... I need to try that. A very yeah, I I did eat it that way once. Uh, I didn't cook it, but uh, yeah, phenomenal that way. My wife's doing turkey tetrazzini tonight. That bird we killed earlier this year, so I'll I'll report back. You know, Mark, I'll let you know. Oh yeah, yeah, that'll be good. There you go. I, you know, I'm more of a man, uh, more of a fan of uh of smoking. I've smoked legs before, and I just I just I I, I mean I. I I, I couldn't get it right, but smoking a breast, you, you brine it like like mm-hmm. you brine like a whole chicken, and you smoke yeah. it. It's gonna smoke quick, but man, is it just killer? I know everyone wants to fry turkey nuggets, but I just if you do it right and you know how to smoke meat, it is just killer. Mm-hmm. I like it that way a lot. I I do uh, like it fried as well, and that's <laughs> what I, when I was growing up, that was the way my mom cooked it. Yeah, we we'd have. Uh, fried turkey fingers with mashed potatoes and English peas and a little gravy that she'd make. I, I can't Good stuff. Can't say there's anything better than that on the world. <laughs> I, I I thought about something a uh, very random question, but um, I think you know Corey can attest to this. We we've got a uh, couple tracks, you know, where I am, um, our farm, so to speak, and one of them we've got wild quail, you know. You know, mm-hmm. several coveries on the tracks, but one particular, we one track, we have more wild quail than we do wild turkeys. And it's been that way. We've got three different, I think three to three or four different coveys. And it's been that way for shoot, 10, 10, 10, 15 years. We have wild turkeys. We we, we have mm-hmm. more turkeys on the other track that's more conducive for that natural kind of turkey habitat, creeks, hardwood bottoms, all that jive. But how is it that, that we legitimately, and that, now that we're overrun with wild wild quail, we mm-hmm. have them, and I know where to go to jump them and see them, and hear them whistling this time of year about to start. But how was that? Seems backwards, right? Well, most of the time plays out the other way. Yeah, you know, where most people have more turkeys than they do quail. But uh, I, you know, I think what you're you're probably seeing is they they have a lot of similarities where they overlap habitat wise, particularly poult rearing is pretty good for Bob whites in general, what's good for poults, but they don't align as well on some of the other habitat components. And they also nest at a different time. So the mm-hmm. quail are nesting a couple months later. Uh, I suspect you probably are a little weaker on another habitat component, like uh, nesting cover or, uh, you know, having those, some of the areas that they might use for for loafing or or uh, other things, you know, that aren't as conducive in quail woods, uh, you probably have another limitation, or it could just be a landscape context, even, uh, you know, depending on what kind of landscape you're in, 
yeah. sometimes you're seeing influences from the broader landscape. So there, there are reasons why you may not see them overlap. Uh, I've had a couple of conversations even with people recently. They're very knowledgeable about the biology of both species and mm -hmm. why we might see one of them decline and not the other uh, in some contexts. And, and uh, I thought some of those insights were particularly interesting when we were thinking about why quail would remain stable in a landscape and turkeys might still decline. Uh, it's hard to wrap your head around, or at least for me, hard to hit, wrap your head around that. Uh, but there are definitely some biological reasons why you may see one perform much better than the other. Although most of the time they go pretty close hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, so what, what what do you think is in terms of the, you know, habitat components? Is there anything that you you view as weaker on that landscape for turkeys than than the other? Some of what our neighbors are doing um, with their timber rotation. Um, we also we're we're on a good burn rotation and a lot of what what we produce when we burn which is a lot during the dormant season burn uh, we get a lot of sawtooth blackberries i mean they'll mm -hmm. and Corey knows about this uh, i mean they'll i mean they're three six feet tall i mean they're, they're very thick mm -hmm. and that's generally where the kind of quail hold up um but i've been getting in starting about 10 years ago but really kind of ramping up the past eight, 10 years is just checkerboarding our property, kind of getting more of that, of a, uh, you know, diversity in mm -hmm. the, um, and focusing on, um, focusing on a turkey habitat and then on the, on the other property, um, where I've been, I've been working really hard on the turkey population. We had this area that was, um, the, the last owner was a timber company and about, two or three years before we bought it, they clear cut about 200 acres and mm -hmm. it would, it was sandy, you know, kind of, you know, sandy soil. And when we got it, it was, you know, low growth, you know, it was just a cut over unmanaged cut over was not replanted and, and we were hunting over it. We were just kind of letting it breathe, letting it develop before we jumped into that property. And then it got the point where all that volunteer growth came up. Turkeys like, like to loaf in it, mm -hmm. but that was about it. So it was like, do we just let it ride for another 30 years until that stuff's merchantable? And then <clears throat> it's not going to be good quality even then. So we just, you know, bit the bullet and we did a knockdown mulching. So mm -hmm. it's just, it, it's, so we chose that, that, that sandier, sandier hill site because it was low quality, wasn't going to be pulpwood material for a while. The lower site has better pulpwood probability. We, we're we're going to do maybe in a couple of years, but um, so there was no value in those trees. We just had a knockdown mulcher come in, just like what it says, knock it down, mulch. And at first, it's it was very, very shocking as a landowner. I mean, I'm fine with it, but a lot of landowners would be like, What just happened? Because nothing's <laughs> leaving that site. Yeah. You know, all these young trees have all are just, you know, knocked over and mulched. And um, we've replanted it. And I'm I'm turkeys are already nesting in there, and I, I'm thinking and hoping that that structure, because, you know, they would mulch up a lot of trees. There were some bigger ones, some smaller ones, but there's a lot of treetops and mm -hmm. there's a lot of structure that's still on the ground that I'm thinking is going to be good for brood rearing. And, you know, that particular site I designed where we've got 
We've got two, we got a food plot in the middle of the 70 acres. We just did 70 acres mm-hmm. at the 200 and then we're going to flip, but there's a big field in the middle and we've burned around it. So that's kind of a test site. I'm really hoping that's going to, um, and we, we've already seen a big influx of turkeys, um, yeah. from that. So I'm hope I, we kind of fell into that and then I realized what I think it was going to do for turkeys. And I'm hoping that it, it will generate um, a population uptick, and maybe mm-hmm. we can we can mimic that. Yeah. Well, I think one thing it sounds like that's one of the poor sites on the on your property, yes. and you know this is something that I think is important for people that uh, I see get ignored a fair amount of the time. Is is get a soil map and figure out, plan out where you know very deliberately where you're going to do some of these things, right? So if you have a place like that that's pretty poor, that is the place to manage for brooding cover. I mean, it yeah. like it's just it the the soil and the landscape is playing to your benefit. You know, succession is slower. You can maintain really good structure for that and you're not fighting tree invasion like you would in a really productive site where you know you could really quickly have trees take over it and it'd be outside of what you're looking for structurally and uh you know plan accordingly you know where you're gonna put put things and you know that 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 patch of poor productivity like that's not necessarily one you want to pick for your food plot you know, look for one of those more productive areas. And that, you know, if you're trying to provide brooding cover through those two avenues, well, the poor site is the one to manage the native plant community. And then you can use your food plotting, you know, to provide some more of that opportunity and some of that more productive dirt. I like that. And, and, you know, after seeing how this has taken shape, because we started this project back in 2021. Yeah. Started, started that site when we tackle the rest of 200 acres, I'm leaning towards maybe not, maybe not replanting pine trees and that site kind of doing the same type thing, but just, you know, letting it be um, good Turkey habitat, quail habitat, and then just resetting it as needed to kind of keep mm-hmm. that structure instead of letting it, instead of planting pine trees, letting, letting them grow up right. and, and doing that rotation, having something centrally located, um, that's conducive for turkeys and just maintaining that quality. Cause you know, yeah. I, I've, I've talked to my dad about that is, you know, pulpwood prices really jacked up um, around COVID, you know, all, mm-hmm. I mean, people were buying, I mean, you know, the paper products were, were going down because people weren't printing as much at the office cause they were in the office, but the shipping, you know, all these boxes mm-hmm. and everything, mm-hmm. you know, diapers and all that stuff, people are home and they're, and they're getting pregnant. So all pulpwood's going up, <laughs> but you know, maybe, you know, plant pine trees, but then just let them get a pulpwood side size and clear cut them. You know, you don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to let them, you know, you're not going to do that when you're not going to make that decision when you plant the pine trees, but it, it is an option. Um, yeah. you don't necessarily have to let them mature out. Um, one thing I was going to ask you, um, I, I, we, we talked about a little bit off the air is that I found a dead hen a couple of weeks ago, first week in, in April, it, it was on a road. It was actually very close to that, knock down mulching clear cut site I was talking about. She was mm-hmm. on the road. Um it was within a within 24 hours probably. At first I thought it was a poacher because it, it was it was chest up and it looked like the chest was just cut and, and the breasts were cut out. Um 
but it wasn't, it obviously wasn't a, a poacher and the head was completely gone. I mean, mm-hmm. completely gone. And then one of the legs, something was trying to get on one of the legs, kind of tear into it. And then just, that's it. I mean, what, what mm-hmm. do you think? What's your thought? Yeah. So uh, this is something that we do quite often in, in, in turkey research is we've, you know, uh, have a, a turkey that's been killed by something and then we'll kind of do a CSI type of investigation, try to figure it out. Sometimes that'll even include swabbing it and sending it off and getting genetics and that sort of thing. But uh, when you brought that up to me, it sounded a lot like great horned owl. Uh, so just predation. And that's one of their primary predators of adults. Mm-hmm. And it, that's, a pattern that seems consistent with that that doesn't not to say that there wasn't another predator that could have done that like a bobcat or something uh that's just that feeding pattern seems pretty consistent to me with the the owl uh but i I would say it's very likely predation the back was a little kind of ruffled up it was like some kind of probably chase it down in the head being gone was that just because that's the mode of killing it ultimately just to chew yeah, the head it, off. Yeah. And we'll see that uh, when we assign them to owls, we'll see that commonly, but I, I have seen some other mammalian predators where we have assigned it to a mammal and the head was gone, but that's just pretty typical of that particular predator's behavior. Yeah. And uh, if you had, you know, if you actually start forensically looking at it i guess if you skinned it out on the back mm-hmm. exactly what you said <sighs> you, you should say bruising on the back basically and and for those out there that maybe it's not readily apparent if it if something has a bruise that means it had a heartbeat so you'll typically see the killing wound or the capturing wound will have bruising associated with it and you can really confidently say that was while the turkey had a heartbeat uh, so that's I wish when, I would have thought about or that, when, or when you know when anything has yeah. the heartbeat, I guess. But uh, yeah, so you can do a little more work to kind of figure out. Okay, was did this? You know, the the other option is the turkey was sick or had something wrong with it, and it died, yeah. and then something scavenged it. Well, if you have wounds that have bruising, then that turkey was alive when that happened, like as that. opposed to looking at those those wounds. If there's no bruising associated with it, it's more likely scavenging. Right. Huh. Interesting. Corey, do so, you have anything on predators, turkey predators? Um, really, I mean, I got um uh, I've heard this a couple of times, and maybe you got maybe you can give me some insight. Um I've kind of heard that if you remove a coyote, it actually prompts kind of fertility in the rest of the coyote population. So rather than you know, just shooting everyone you see, you know, kind of as it goes, really kind of honing your trapping or your your efforts towards you know time of the year when you know the turkey and the deer are vulnerable you know to predation uh rather mm-hmm. than just especially with coyotes i don't know if it if it rings true with all predators but uh i've always heard that i don't know if you have any insight on that um yeah no, that's a really good question and uh it's often one of those that is a point of contention and disagreement uh, with coyotes, so what you're describing is is called compensatory reproduction, and 
basically what all that means is if you remove some of them it expands the amount of resources available to the others that didn't get removed and they can increase their reproductive rate you know to compensate for that loss and oh, there yeah go ahead i've heard that like if you actually shoot one they've done pen studies and i don't know i can't cite any of this but where you remove a voice from the pack they kind of simulated a pack and then they took one out that it actually causes all the female coyotes to go back into heat you know i don't know if that's if you're familiar well, with that I'm, or if that's just a made-up fire tail you know fire pot story i don't know About coyotes, I haven't seen that specifically, but there is some data from out west uh, that indicates that there may be some compensatory reproduction when coyotes are persecuted. There was a really good study in South Carolina that was trying to figure out on Savannah River site. Uh, it's actually the best study there is on this. Uh, that they were intensively trapping coyotes for years, you know, several years in a row, and they never ran out of them. And they were doing it at huge scales, yeah. you know, like 8,000 yeah. acre blocks or whatever. And uh, they had paid trappers that were really good at it. They were removing a ton of coyotes and they didn't run out of them. So they started doing genetic work to try to figure out why, where are they coming from? And the two hypotheses, one of them was that, that they expanded reproduction and they were refilling the population basically with, with new reproduction, or it was compensatory immigration, which just means that the losses are being compensated for by new coyotes moving in from adjacent areas. And based on genetics there, it showed uh, that it was the immigration. So there were new coyotes moving in. And I have some insights in this and it's not unique to to the study i was involved with it's been shown on all of the studies as far as i know where we've collared coyotes it makes a lot of sense why that would happen we had coyotes that we collared that dispersed in just a short amount of time hundreds of miles and one of them straight line distance it was like nine or uh if you mapped out how far the coyote had to walk minimum distance it would have had to walk between where we captured it and where the end point was a few months later, it was 900 miles. Wow. So they're operating at such an enormous scale. Yeah. You know, the, the trapping, you're creating a void and then they just fill in. We just can't operate at a large enough scale, uh, you know, to overcome that. So, uh, and in that same study, and then in a couple of other studies where we've used intensive trapping, we haven't done it with turkeys, so let me be clear about that, but we did do that with deer, where we we're trying to intensively trap and remove as many as we can, and then tracked how it affected fawn survival, we can't get a consistent effect. So we can, on a really large piece of the landscape and replicated studies, there's several studies now in the east, uh, that show this we've intensively removed them and compare that to not removing them and we can't consistently cause fawn survival to be better so uh, the question is why is that well it's probably partly because of this compensatory immigration 
where you could kill a coyote and you could have another one in its place a week later from a state over. Yeah. Okay. You know, we're talking about an enormous scale. So that's one problem. Uh, the other problem is related with the other part you were bringing up where you have these, you know, you have a dominant female and male and they are really good at defending their territory and they're doing it around the clock. And uh, Dana Morin actually is a professor at Mississippi State, but during her PhD work, she showed me data and she's published it now from from Virginia about this where the home ranges of the animals looked like donuts. They were spending all their time at their perimeter kind of defending it. So then the question becomes, well, what happens if you take out an individual that's defending this perimeter all the time? Well, then it's not a perimeter anymore. And then you have this influx of new individuals. There is some data from some places in the U.S. that suggests that that would be really strong. So you basically kill one and you just create a void and you could temporarily end up with more coyotes as a result of that than if you had not. So there's lots of things going on. The one thing that we can glean from that, although we don't have any data showing that it improves things for turkeys or deer, uh, if, you know, to give it the best possible chance of working and being effective, you would do exactly what you just said, where you really concentrate the effort to be intensive right at, right before that reproductive event and through the reproductive event. So you'd be really intensive there and that'd be a really large scale. So if you combine high intensity at the right time at a really large scale, that'd give us the best uh, possibility that we get, you know, consistent positive effects out of it. But we haven't been able to demonstrate that. And that that's, makes me a little bit concerned about it being our go-to option. I, mm -hmm. You know, I don't care if people want to trap. It's a lot of fun and there's a lot of skill in it. And I like it because of that. And I think it gets people involved in doing things on their property and I, I think there's a lot of value in all those things but I'm a little bit hesitant about using that as our primary way to correct populations because right. we just can't show it with data consistently and that that makes me wonder about it when we have data at least from quail where we can very clearly show that if you make habitat improvements we have a dramatic effect on populations very quickly so, so you know if we're kind of trying to balance those two we clearly have a big effect of one and by the way improving habitat also decreases predation risk because they have better places to nest and hide and poult rear and all those things so you know they're they're not even separated from one another habitat management is a predator management strategy so that's kind of better as far as turkey goes you know is it a would it be a better strategy obviously from what i'm hearing here which we kind of we kind of know is just creating a, a better more suitable habitat for rearing you know to kind of give them a place to hide and you know kind of hide mm -hmm. you know evade predators um but is that you know is it is it better to focus your energy on like uh varmints you know stuff that's gonna raid a nest you know your your raccoons um I don't really know about bobcats that much, but I mean, is it, do, they, do you see the same phenomenon with the compensatory, whatever you just said, um, reproduction? <laughs> um, you can say, you can say it, Corey, go ahead. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't remember the word you use. You're not that smart. Um, but, uh, 
do you see that with any other, you know, with bobcats or any other kind of predators you would associate with turkeys, or is it strictly with with coyotes that you're kind of seeing that, or is that just where the predominant research? Well, uh, that's a great question. I think you still see those same things. You just see them at a different spatial scale, and most people would have more control over smaller things that have a smaller spatial extent that they're operating in. Right. Uh, that being said, we we don't have very good data on those either for turkeys. And what we do have, uh, when you ask anybody that's trapping, they, it's done wonders for their population. So an anecdotal observations suggest that they're really successful. But I typically see that where it's done really well in landscapes that they're always also managing habitat really well. So, you know, there's an issue there. And also we see these huge fluctuations in populations of turkeys anyway, just because of natural fluctuation so it's hard to detangle what you're seeing and whether or not you're seeing a thing but uh when we look we have a couple of studies on turkeys and they were pretty inconsistent even when we we're talking about those smaller mm. things uh, and they were measuring nesting uh in particular we do have good information on quail on that and they're doing the trapping is very intensive at a very large scale relative to the predator and prey. And it's in a situation where the habitat quality is basically as good as you can figure out to get it. And in that case, we can get a bump in, in a uh, quail into the fall uh, population, which is where it matters for quail because you're hunting them then. Uh, we don't have any data uh, there may be some data on some species somewhere on the planet, but there's not any on turkeys or quail that I'm aware of, and we don't have very good data for sure showing us having an effect all the way to the following breeding season. So in other words, for turkeys, seeing an effect carry over all the way to the following turkey season, uh, that that's much more unlikely because there's so many things going on. And uh, people don't want to hear that, but it's just a reality of the situation. Uh, when it, you know, the, the reason it, it's very complex, the way that predator prey dynamics work. And part of it is the way that the predators dynamics are working, but also you have prey responding to pressures differently. And what, so let's take the, a turkey where a large, portion of the turkeys are going to fail in that first two weeks after hatching well it, predators are only one way to die there's a lot of other ways to die and if you're not addressing uh, habitat components for instance that allow them to catch insects to yeah. support skeletal growth they're going to die if you're not providing a ha the habitat component that has the appropriate uh, thermal environment to escape exposure they're going to die doesn't matter how many predators there are so what we often see is if you have this habitat dis deficiency you could trap all the predators out of the i mean you could be super effective at getting rid of all of them and they still all die because you have another problem right and uh that that's called compensatory mortality so you just put compensatory on the front of everything and it, <laughs> uh but that you know that's what's happening basically in these populations you you may have a limiting factor that is leading them to be more vulnerable to predation or it's a different reason to die that they're going to die from instead of predation and that kind of muddies that relationship on trapping 
So that's not to discourage anybody from going and trapping. Like I said, I I would, I'm happy for people to interact with, with the, you know, their property and, and wildlife and everything. And I think that's a great fun way to do that. But, uh, it's not as simple as, you know, we kind of have these, this division where we have the habitat group where they're all habitat, nothing else. And we have this predator group that is all predation and nothing else. And the reality is those things are interacting and we can address both on the habitat side. And we know that we can do that pretty effectively. And the trapping side, we're addressing one thing and we usually do it poorly. And even in that circumstance, the only time it really can work is when you don't have a limitation on the habitat side because they're going to die from something else if they're, if they have insufficient habitat. Yeah. So I like that. It kind of, it kind of gets this, you know, get into this really weird, uh, dynamic between them. And, and it, it just seems so obvious to people that removing predators means more game, but it doesn't sometimes. That's right. That's right. I've got a really good it friend who doesn't. put a lot of effort into pop into trapping and everything. And, they were just singing praises about it, but at, you know, at the same time, they were just starting to burn and clear their property. But they attributed all mm. their success to the turkeys, you know, right. to uh, you know, to the trapping. I was like, well, yeah, well, that's not of that, but yeah, um, well, it's not to say that eloquently as you did. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not to say that the trap they didn't gain something from trapping. If they're addressing habitat concerns, we do have evidence from several species, not turkeys, but other species that if you have habitat in good shape, you can normally get a bump out of the predator control. But they're they're not even honestly on the same order of magnitude in terms of what you get out of the two. Like they're just not right. even close to one another and one is dependent on the other as the predator control was dependent on the habitat because of the million ways to die thing. Yeah. Right. So if they're if they're all going to die the next rainstorm because they can't escape it because there's no <laughs> suitable road ring cover, it doesn't make a. It doesn't matter how many raccoons there are. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, um, let's start to wrap this up. I know you're a busy man. I know you got a lot of things to do. Turkey season's not over, so maybe getting <laughs> out in the woods. Um, I wish. Well. Let's do some rapid fire questions here. What, what what do you think in your in your opinion as a hunter? You know, put your hunting hat on. What do you think the what do you, what do you think is the hardest species of turkeys to hunt? Or do you or do you think say, there is one? Or does I yeah, I definitely have had the most quarrel with the easterns. Yeah. Especially deep southeasterns. See that that's what I blame when I don't kill them. That that's that's what I go, <laughs> that's what I go with. <laughs> Um, well, it's probably lack of skill on my end. It, it's, uh, it's not the Turkey, but maybe it's just, I've spent the most time with the deep South Easterns and that's why I'm pointing at them. But yeah, I, I have can, yeah, I, I've had some, some consistent, uh, mismatches when I've gone up against those guys. Well, speaking of that, going up against, um, let's say there's one gobbler on this, on this particular property and he's just hammering away. He's, he's fired up. And it's you and Dr. Goldsby who, who's the one that's going to call him in. Who's going to seal the deal. I, which one of us is going to like, uh -huh. if we're on the opposite sides of them. Yeah. I don't know. He, he did, uh, he did close the deal the other 
Saturday, he closed the deal on that turkey. It was when he started calling that it decided it was coming. Now, that, that being said, I didn't actually, at the time, I was not doing any calling. It was him and his buddy, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> we we might have to, we might have to have a battle of the ages just to work that think, out. That's right. Take, um, <laughs> get like a betting line going on your podcast. Yeah. Um, well, we could, yeah, we could donate, like everybody could bet on it and we could donate part of it to Turkey research or something. That's right. Do, do like a, do like a Calcutta <laughs> where people are, people are choosing hunters. Yeah. Um, I, oh, I think that would, that, that would bird. go well. <laughs> That'd be good. Um, a good friend of mine recently, I, I posted this video of, um, I had three Jakes come in and they just, they just whipped my Jake decoy. They just beat it down or pecking at it. He, he told me something I thought was hilarious. He said, uh, Hunter Rudd said, uh, you've got the blood, the crypt and the Jakes. How, <laughs> how often are Jakes like just killing other Jakes? I mean, is it something, I mean, I realized my decoy that they knocked down and we're pecking at and just you know, it, it's a decoy, obviously, mm -hmm. but I mean, are they routinely killing other jakes to kind of come in their territory? Or is that really a thing? Where I mean, that's well, like prevalent. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that they're necessarily killing them, but you're watching. Basically, they spend a lot of the winter mm -hmm. working out who's going to be boss, and that this goes with multiple, you know, the older age class as well. And uh, you know, somebody new shows up and. You know, you got to work out who's going to be boss. And, you know, that some of those fights are, I mean, I've seen lots of videos of them. I've witnessed it in a couple of instances. Yeah. Some of the fights between real turkeys is, is pretty unbelievable. You know, and that the, the spur is thought to have developed for that very purpose to, you know, to, uh, fight each other. So, uh, I don't know that they're necessarily going to kill them but that might be a really intense fight. Yeah. Or, or it may not kill them, but it might, you know, soften them up for that predator, you know, maybe yeah, you know, easy, you know, easy, easy, easy. Sure. What, um, last question. I think if you're, if you're losing turkeys because they're whipping each other, that's and a good thing. A predator gets them. You're probably doing pretty good. <laughs> and I'm not real, saying real quick. Are those typically clutch mates that you see when you see that roving band of jakes that come through? You know, are those typically clutch mates that are they just kind of grew up together, the same same brood, or are they kind of yeah, in line for getting in fights and just kind of create a gang? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think a, a lot of the time they're brothers, and uh, there's been some work they could be clutch mates and not brothers because there, there's some nest dumping. And also there's multiple paternity often. Uh, there's some data that's pretty good on that. So in other words, they could hatch from the same nest and not actually be related genetically. Mm. Or they could be half related, depending on the situation. They could be fully unrelated or half related, I guess. Uh, but they're pretty common based on genetic work. They will be from the same clutch. Now, that being said, they, they later in the brooding, you'll see hands come together and their broods will come together. Uh, so they may just have, have been broodmates. Uh, so, you know, kind of later on in that process when you see them coming together. So uh, it could be any of those, but uh, 
often they're they are related. Sure. I like it. What last question I got for you, and I'll let you go, I promise. What's something mm-hmm. that you you um that you noted that you observed in your professional career that you never, if you could rewind going back before we started your professional career, that you never would have thought in a million years that you would have observed or noted this piece of research in turkeys deep deep here i'm gonna close this out <laughs> on something well um uh, and, and you can say that turkey nuggets taste better than smoked or whatever well <laughs> i'm trying to think of uh some research stuff there there have been a few things this year that when we tagged a bunch of of osceolas and have been tracking them around and I, i'll tell you every time i see data i'm just like wow i don't know anything about turkeys that, that's wait, one thing wait, wait, i would wait, have never thought don't say that i mean i realize a lot of people will be well, listen saying, to this podcast but don't say that on your podcast well i'm just i you know it's humbling yeah because yeah, I'm kidding. we've been studying this bird and watching it you know we've got all these tagged individuals and then you see one it's like i don't know what in the world's going on here and uh one of those that that kind of resonated with me this year is we had a couple of hens they live in an orange grove they've been i mean typical florida right uh these birds they live in this orange grove and we've been tracking them for months they basically don't even leave it you know just a really small home range and then one day both there there was a pair of hens that they were together and both of them just decided you know what it's time to go and they both they kind of went in the same direction but they clearly weren't together they both kind of went north and uh one of them went almost 10 miles hmm, really? just in like two days and then wow. she was and it was an adult hen and uh then she just set up shop and now uh we we've still we got gps data on her and we're still watching her and she just set up in a new shop and the other one came back hmm so I don't know, like, I, why, what are they doing? I don't, I don't know what they're doing, but seeing data like that, it makes you realize how much is going on. You just have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they just, they just do weird things. That's what makes it fun. Right. Yeah. So well, you might see a Turkey and it literally could have been from 10 miles down the road two days ago. And, uh, you know, everybody talks about, Oh, this is that same hen that lives in this woodlot. And it's like, well, Maybe. Oh, uh, yeah. I love when people say <laughs> stuff like that. You know, this is the same buck that I let pass five years ago. And I was like, okay, you know, yeah. who really knows? Well, Dr. Lashley, I appreciate your time. I really do. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. I appreciate you coming yeah. on. I, and I, I will leave you with this. The next year, the third, the third week in, the third week in March, I hope you can um, accept this invitation to come hunt, hunt my farm in South Carolina. Oh, I I've, really I've, appreciate that. I've got birds. Um, Corey knows about them. I don't, I don't, I let them walk. I let them, I let them walk. I try to kill Marty, them. Marty Stauffer, Jr. Yeah. I, like Corey said, I'm the ultimate con- conservationist. I hunt them, but I don't kill them because I can't, but they're there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like if, to you, look at them. if you want to, I mean, we, 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 um, I'd love to have you over if you, if you want to hunt somewhere, yeah. South Carolina, ours usually open out. I think it was, I think it was the 22nd and the 24th. I have in the 22nd. I think it was like a Wednesday this year. Um, they pushed it back. Usually it was it, for a while, it was before St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. They bumped, bumped it back a little bit and switched. Um, I know you know all about that. 
switch, switch, switch the seasons up. So, mm-hmm. um, but I appreciate you coming on. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Likewise. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me and love to, uh, come get after one in South Carolina. I've never killed one in that state. So, uh, would love we should, to. and maybe I can get yeah. you, maybe I can get you in that, um, the, the low country Turkey invitational. That's a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Doing that. Yeah. We've, I, I, uh, I've been involved in a couple of them in the past and, you know, really oh, great okay. events yeah. uh, to raise funding. And, you know, I'm all about raising funding for turkeys, whether it be habitat or research or whatever. So, you know, really, uh, enjoy doing that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I implore everybody to check out the wild turkey science podcast. It's some good stuff. I mean, it, I mean, it really is, um, like a lot yeah, of Corey. Corey, you got anything before we wrap wrap this up? No, man, had a great time. Thanks for having me on, and uh, it's been great sitting here talking turkey. Um, yeah, really, really insightful. And same goes, man. If you ever, if you're ever around South Georgia, you know, even even between the end of the, now and the end of the year, you know, come on up and see if we can't kill a bird. You know, teach me. Yeah. Something. Well, I don't know. Maybe you can teach me something. <laughs> well, hope, hopefully, hopefully, Corey was taking notes because he's supposed to be taking taking me turkey hunting at his place Thursday. So, oh, look out now! Hope hey, you man, were taking I put notes, you right Corey. Right underneath the tree, Mark. I don't know what else to do other than put you underneath. Okay. Yeah, he he took me last last Friday, and all of a sudden he grabbed my arm. I thought like a rattlesnake was about to bite me. He grabbed my arm, <laughs> yanked it, pointed up, and, the, and there's a Jake. Like I had never been that close. I mean, we were yeah right i mean and there was a perfect silhouette of him and it looked like he didn't even really notice us until i until i went to take a video of him and i still had my video um on um (laughs) with my my light on because i was yeah i was grilling some uh some venison t-bones at night so i had my i had my light on my video and i went to video and the light turned on and he flew (laughs) off and there was a second one right right next to him so well, maybe yeah. we can get after them. It sounds like you're getting under them anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, we need to make that happen next year. You need to come down. Yeah. I, our our season closed uh, Sunday, the 30th, um, this past Sunday. I, I took mm-hmm. my kids uh, this weekend. I've taken them a couple of times. But, you know, we're taking a three- and six-year-old turkey hunting. You're, you're very stationary. And, you don't. I, I tell you, you don't realize how loud a kid can be, my three-year-old, when he's – got his iPad and he's got the, got the headphones on and he's just breathing. He's, he's like eating, eating, eating goldfish and breathing how, how loud they are, or they start laughing from their iPad. And it's like, you know, cause they can't hear themselves, mm-hmm. but it's fun to get out there. Oh, uh, one more thing. Uh, we're having a, uh, just for anybody out there, we're having a field day outdoor wildlife and uh, land workshop uh, in Midway, Georgia coming up in first week of June. So anybody listening or if you can make it up, we'd love to have you. I uh, got a lot of great speakers coming in. Um, anybody interested in learning? We got all kinds of topics covering pretty much, I wouldn't say everything, but we got a pretty full gambit. At least people come to talk. Yeah. Cover yeah. pretty much everything. So uh, that's going to be a good one. June. Our website and register for that. June 3rd, look at Coastal Empire, uh, NDA, National Deer Association. Um, Corey's got this links on there. Got Lindsey Thomas coming in for from NDA, some biologists, foresters. Um, so it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be a good time. Mark Haslam, yeah. Southeast Whitetail. I mean, yeah, yeah. I feel <laughs> like did I get an email from one of you guys about that? Yeah, yeah. At some you did. point. Okay, I missed that one. <laughs> That's all right. 
Well, thanks for coming on. Good, you know, I would tell you good luck the rest of the season, Marcus. But I mean, you're you're I mean, uh, you're pretty <laughs> humble about your your turkey season so far this year. I mean, that's some. Yeah. Well, I'm unfortunately, I think I'm probably done for the year. I had a trip up to North Carolina that I was going to try to make, but uh, I'm not going to be able to get up there now. So I think I'm probably done. There you go. I, you know, I, I I say this every year after like deer season that like I would never choose to end deer season. You know, like if it was up to me, I would never be the one that ends it, but I'm glad when it's over. And I'm kind of glad mm-hmm. when turkey season, our, our season ends Sunday, just because it just now, like I'm going up this next week and I'm spraying, I, I'm, I'm prepping food plots. Mm-hmm. But if it was still turkey season, I'm kind of doing both. And you can't yeah. do both. You can't, right. you can't work the land and hunt. It just doesn't, you, you're not, mm-hmm. you just spin your wheels. So, well, thank you again for being on. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I appreciate your time, Dr. Lashley. Yeah. Appreciate yeah, Please thanks, everybody guys. check out the Wild Turkey Science po- Podcast, subscribe. Um, and send them all the questions you want to blow them up. To, uh, <laughs> yeah. Keep, I'm keep having busy. a hard time keeping up. I, <laughs> I really appreciate all the feedback though. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks guys. Have I appreciate it. it. was fun. Thank you.